Hebrews uh, chapter 2, verse 5 to 18 in the NIV. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honour and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Just let me take a look at your faces, because I'm not going to see them for a few weeks. Love you guys, and you guys. So... This morning, we're going to look at how Jesus is a saviour for all. I'm going to start with posing a question to you. How would you explain the gospel to someone who'd never heard it before? What kind of story would you tell if you needed to put it into different words to explain it? Maybe you would use the famous story of a judge who's hearing the case of a bank robber who's stolen a million pounds. He's found guilty. He can't pay. Everyone expects him to go to jail, but then the last minute when the sentence is being given, the judge steps down from the platform and says, I'm going to go to prison. I'm going to pay it back. He can go free. And the criminal walks away with a clean record and in gratitude to the judge lives a life free of theft. Now there's nothing wrong with that story. It's maybe a helpful story to many people. And maybe for many of us here in this culture, it makes sense. 
is clear. And it captures something of the unfairness of the gospel, that the sinless, perfect judge who did nothing wrong pays the price and the criminal goes free. Not everyone in the world thinks in terms of guilt and innocence, punishment and penalty. Some cultures think in terms of shame and honour. Shame is about our reputation, about face, saving face. It's not so much about what you do, though that does matter, but it's more about who knows it, who sees it. And shame and honour are about our connectedness to other people. So what I do impacts on the honour of my family and my community as well. In that shame-honour paradigm, it's, it's contagious. So honour can be transferred from somebody of high status to somebody of low status. But shame is catching too. I guess the most extreme example of this is so-called honour killing, where usually a girl or a woman is killed because of something they've done or something that's been done to them that has supposedly brought shame on the family. And the only way that people can see to end the shame for the family is to end the life of that person. It's the only way to restore honour. So shame isn't just over what we've done, but it can also be over what's been done to us. In that paradigm, someone who's been abused can be shamed. How would you explain the gospel to someone living in that paradigm, to someone living in that mindset, not so much focused on guilt and innocence, but on shame and honour. And this really matters, because a huge proportion of our world and many of our friends and neighbours live in that world, or maybe in a mix of the two. And if we talk to those friends and neighbours and colleagues about the perfect judge who paid the price, who paid the fine and and did the jail time. It might sound like a noble thing to do, but is it really going to land in the sore places in their heart? Sure, the prison sentence is taken away, but everyone still knows that the guy did it. Who's going to deal with the shame of his family? What's the answer to that? So we've got guilt and innocence, honour and shame. And I want to share another paradigm, which is actually less often talked about than those, but very important, and that's fear and power. So another lens, a way that people look at the world. Now, in the last 20 years in the West, our cultural guardians have pretended that we've all moved on from superstition. We believe in science. And we do. But right now, in this moment we're living in, in this week in time, 1st of November, the limitations of science are being exposed. If we say we follow the science on COVID, which science? Whose science? Are we following the science that Sweden are following? 
are we following the science that China are following, or, or Russia, or the World Health Organization, or SAGE, or Independent SAGE, or what science are we following? I'm not trying to denigrate science. I love science. I'm really thankful for science. My husband has type 1 diabetes, and if it weren't for science, he, he wouldn't have lived beyond 13 years old, and he would die in a few days if he didn't have his insulin. The computer that I wrote this sermon on was a product of science and technology, and I'm really grateful because I'd get really sore hands if I had to write it all out by hand, and it'd be hard to read as well while I'm talking to you. I love science. I love technology. But it's not the supreme authority that maybe we sometimes like to think it is. We pretend as a culture that we are past superstition. We've grown up. I don't think it ever went away. Our newspapers still have horoscopes. Many of my friends who are secular have some vague spirituality nonetheless. They say, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. Superstition hasn't gone anywhere. However, I do think it's true that in Britain today, most people would go about their average day not really thinking much about spiritual powers, about things you can't see. And that is not the same elsewhere in our world. It's not the same for all of our friends and neighbours. I've had a Muslim colleague in tears, absolutely desperate, because someone she knew had put a curse on her, and she didn't know how she could get out of the grip of this curse. Another colleague of mine in a different job had been married to a man who was very abusive and she left. And so his family practiced voodoo on her. The kind of horror movie stuff, they made a doll and stuck pins in it. If you go to Eastern Greece or Turkey on holiday, when we're allowed to do that again, you have to be really careful about the tacky souvenirs you buy. Because in those places, loads of stuff will have this little blue and white eye embedded in it somewhere. I mean, even like you buy a bag of herbs and it will be tied around it. And that is a superstition. It's about warding off evil, warding off ill will that others might have towards you. It's about fear, power, dark powers that are out there in the world and that can be summoned up by other people who hate you. And if we tell the story of the judge... To somebody who lives in that world, in that worldview, again, it might not quite satisfy. Because maybe they're going to think, well, that's, that's really great that he went to prison, but what about the curse? You know, maybe the bank manager in this situation lost his job because he didn't do enough to, protect, to stop the theft. And what about him and his family and the hatred that they're now going to have to this person? The judge paying a fine or going to prison doesn't deal with that, that hatred, that power, that curse. Having entered into evil, how can the thief ever escape its clutches? And I think in this passage, what we see is the breadth of salvation in Jesus. And that's why I've called this section a saviour for all. Not because I believe the Bible teaches that all will be saved, I don't see that in the scriptures. But I do think it teaches that all can be saved, that 
all are invited to this great salvation, that the, the power, the breadth of what Jesus has done is for every human in every culture, in every context, whatever mix of those different things we are, the gospel is for us, is for all. This great salvation which imputes innocence to the guilty, bestows honour on the shamed and gives power to those living in fear. We don't have to just pick one of those things in whatever our culture. I think actually what we see in scripture is that we're all guilty. We all bear shame. We all live in fear. And so the good news of innocence, honour and power is actually for all of us. If we accept it. So let's look at what the gospel offers to us in our different worldviews. The gospel of innocence for the guilty. How does Jesus deal with our guilt? He took our punishment. Because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So like that judge, he, he, he did it. He took the penalty in himself. It goes on to say that he became a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. So our sin, our guilt, is dealt with. Atonement, reconciliation with God, innocence, has been won for us through what Jesus has done. What about our shame? What is the gospel of honour for the shamed. Jesus deserved and had great honour. But for a little while, voluntarily, he took on a lower status. Verse 9 says, he was made lower than the angels for a little while. But then, then he was crowned with glory and honour. And the kind of crown being talked about here, it's not like a royal crown. It's not what you might go and see in the Tower of London for a pound, uh, you know, when all this is over. It's actually the crown of a victor. It's a crown that's awarded to someone who has won the race or won the war. It's a sign of honour earned. So Jesus was temporarily lowered in status. Though he was God, he was born to very poor parents in a particularly rough, kind of looked down upon part of Israel up north. And he suffered the most shameful death imaginable in that culture at that time. And then, crowned with glory and honour. And it doesn't stop there because that story isn't only about Jesus. Because in verse 10, we read that God's intention is to bring many sons and daughters to glory as well. So we sit in our shame. But God wants to bring us into glory, into honour. He wants to take away the shame and exchange it for honour. And how does that happen? Through Jesus taking on our shame, he's then able to share with us his honour. I don't think it's a coincidence that in India, one of the communities that's seen the biggest move of the gospel, the largest numbers of people accepting Jesus, is the Dalit people, the so-called untouchables, 
those given the lowest status in the caste system in that society. And they're the ones who hear that message of honour for the shamed. And it resonates. And remember how we heard that the shame-honour paradigm, that worldview, that lens, it's not just about individuals, it's about families. And we're not only invited to share in the honour of the risen Jesus, but we're also invited into his family. Verse 11, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. And some of our friends have lost their families as a consequence of following Jesus. For someone who's from a cultural background that's less individualistic than this one, that is devastating. I think it's devastating whatever your background, but particularly if you're from a cultural context where the family is everything, then to lose your family for the sake of Jesus is a great price to pay. But Jesus offers honour and a family name and a family to be part of to those who come to him. So what about those living in fear of the dark powers at work in the world? Some would say the answer to that is to say, oh, those things don't exist anymore. No, no, no. There's none of that. I don't think that's true. I don't think the Bible teaches that. And that's certainly not my experience of the world. I've seen things that I can't explain through any other way. So I don't say to those people, don't worry, those things don't exist. What I would say might be this. Verse 14, by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. That's what Jesus has done on the cross in his death. Atonement for the guilty, innocence. And he took on shame so that the shamed could receive honour. And now we see that by his death, he broke not only the power of death, but the power behind the power. The devil. The one in charge of all those other dark powers that people fear. And so the gospel in Jesus offers hope for those living in fear of the powers, in living, living in fear of demons and the devil and curses and hatred. Freedom. Power over that fear. So Jesus is a saviour for all. That is in every culture, in every time, in every place. The gospel offers salvation to all, no matter our plight, no matter the, the trouble of our heart, whether it's our guilt, whether it's shame, whether it's fear. The gospel offers salvation for all. And I hope that that's encouraged you to start thinking about how you might share the gospel, how you might frame it for people. The message doesn't change. This passage has been in the Bible now for 2,000 years or so, but it's relevant across every culture today. We don't change the message, but we do change how we tell it. The little story of the judge that I started with might not be appropriate in every culture and to every person, and that's okay because that particular story isn't from the Bible, it's a way of retelling that bigger story. We need to recognise that we human beings have different names for our chains, but the gospel is the hammer that breaks every chain. 
But if we are in chains, if we're in one or two or maybe all three of those things, if we are burdened by guilt, by shame, by fear, how can we be sure that what Jesus did was enough? Maybe we're really attracted to the idea of this. Maybe the idea that we could exchange our shame for honour, our guilt for innocence, our fear for power. Maybe we think that sounds amazing. I would love that. But is it really there? Can I really trust that? Is that even possible? What are Jesus' credentials? He's a saviour for all and he's a saviour for sure. And I think that's what the writer of Hebrews kind of starts to do here and he or she is going to unpack that much more for us later. How we can know that Jesus is a saviour for sure. And firstly, and throughout the book of Hebrews, we're told that he is the one that was foretold. He wasn't just some random who came and did some really strange things at a particular time, but he was the one that the scriptures had all pointed to. The prophets, the Psalms, the Torah, the commands, all of it actually pointed to him. And here he is. One of my jobs before was to be an MVQ assessor. So I would help people get their qualifications for their work. And they would bring me pieces of work that would show how they met the different criteria for their qualification for their job. And each piece of work might meet seven or eight criteria. And in a way... That's kind of like how the writer of Hebrews uses the Old Testament scriptures. They, they bring in these references for us and they show us how Jesus actually meets those criteria. How Jesus is the one that was spoken of. God's saving Messiah, the coming king, the highest of high priests, the once for all sacrifice, the temple, the tabernacle, all of it, all of the stuff is met. In Jesus, he was the one foretold, and we're going to see that much more in the coming weeks. But he was also, and this is very important, a fully human pioneer. How can we be certain that what Jesus did was enough for us? It's really important that we know that he was fully human, and so what he did is available to us. He went into death and came out the other side. So we can do the same. And verses 14 to 18 have a lot to say about the humanity, the full humanity of Jesus. He wasn't some kind of spirit that moved around like a ghost. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. That was verse 14. Verse 17, for this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way. Verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Fully human, the pioneer, the one who goes ahead of us and makes the way that we couldn't make for ourselves. We can't get back to innocence. We can't get rid of our shame. We can't break our own fear, but he goes before us and he does it all so that we can have it too. Fully human. So this passage, and indeed this book, go into great detail for us about this great salvation and how we can depend on it, we can trust it. It's salvation for sure. We turn to the judge and we say, 
how can I be certain that you've paid the full fine, that you're, you're going to serve my whole sentence? How, how do I know that you've dealt with the dishonor that I brought to my family? How do I know that I'm not under any curse? And the answer is in the incarnation, that is the becoming flesh, the death, the resurrection, and the glorification of Jesus. All of it, not just one part of that story, but the whole story. Advent and Christmas and Good Friday and Easter Sunday and the Ascension and Pentecost, all of it, none of the chocolate, but all of the glory, all of that story is a story of our salvation. Salvation for all and salvation for sure. So what now? What for us today? What for us as we count down the days towards our next lockdown? What for us as maybe we think about our guilt, our shame, our fear? How will we respond to this great salvation? I know that some of you here haven't yet made up your mind about Jesus. I want to ask you if any of those things that I talked about this morning resonate with your heart, whether guilt, shame, fear, a part of your life, part of your story. Do you recognize yourself in any of that? And Do you recognize your need for a savior? Because the invitation is for everyone. It's for you today. And if you want to respond to Jesus, if you want to accept that invitation and have innocence and honor and power, instead of guilt and shame and fear, then we would love to pray with you after the service. Just come and grab myself or Tony or Nixon, who's leading the service, and and we would love to pray with you and talk with you more about that. How you can join in the family that Jesus makes us part of, because we're not saved to be on our own. And if you know him already, if you already call Jesus your saviour, then I think that this passage this morning is to help you to prepare for the therefore. Because next week, Luke's going to share with us from Hebrews 3, verse 1. And don't worry, Luke, I'm not going to do your whole sermon now, but he's going to start with this. Therefore, so prepare for the therefore. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Prepare to fix your minds on him. Prepare to fill your minds with him and what he's done. Prepare to meditate on how what he's done for you might be shared with those around you, how you might frame it and package it for them in a new way, in a fresh way that actually takes account of their situation, not just your own. As we study this book of Hebrews together and also through Advent and then Christmas, particularly as we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus, as we celebrate the one who had all the glory being made low so that we could be made high. Let's fix our eyes on him and fill our minds with him. I'm going to invite the bands up now. We're going to carry on with some worship. Remember that, that he took on flesh. He came to be fully human, fully human, so that he could be our perfect pioneer that goes ahead of us and makes a way for us 
to innocence, honour and power. He tasted death to defeat it and to defeat the power behind it. He offers salvation to all and salvation for sure.